Welcome to Making Peace Visible. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. Usually on this show, we highlight stories of peace building in a news landscape dominated by conflict. But today, we're going to talk about a violent conflict that's been largely missing from today's headlines, with devastating consequences. From November 2020 to November 2022, a war that has been bloodier than Russia's war in Ukraine was fought in northern Ethiopia, in a region called Tigray. The violence grew out of ethnic and political tensions in the country. Ethiopia has 10 major ethnic groups. Tigrayans make up about 6% of Ethiopia's population, but they've played a major role in recent history. From the 1990s up until recently, a party called the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, dominated the coalition that governed Ethiopia. That era ended in 2018 with the election of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who was seen as a leader who could unite the country across ethnic groups. He even received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 for resolving a border conflict with Eritrea. But in 2020, a power struggle emerged between the Prime Minister and the TPLF. Citing COVID concerns, Abiy postponed the national election. The TPLF, which controls Tigray's regional government, saw that postponement as a threat. Against federal orders, Tigray held regional elections in September of 2020. Soon after, Ahmed accused the TPLF of attacking a federal army camp. He declared a state of emergency and ordered federal troops into Tigray. Eritrean soldiers also joined the conflict on Abiy's side. The start of the war came with a complete communications blackout. The Ethiopian government cut off all phone lines and internet connections in Tigray and barred journalists from entering the war zones. But that didn't stop today's guest. From her home in Addis Ababa, freelance journalist Lucy Casa investigated some of the worst atrocities of the conflict, including violations committed by all the factions involved. Ethiopian troops, Eritrean troops, militias, and Tigrayan forces. She published her reports in major international outlets, including The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and the LA Times. But fearing for her life and under threat from the government, Lucy fled Ethiopia in February 2021. She continued to cover the war from exile. After hundreds of thousands of lives lost and millions displaced, the TPLF and the Prime Minister signed a peace agreement just a few weeks ago, on November 2, 2022. But Lucy continues to investigate reports of human rights violations. She's received an Amnesty International Media Award and a Global Magnitsky Award for investigative journalism. A warning, this episode includes discussion of violence, including rape. We recorded our conversation on November 28th, 2022. I started our interview by asking Lucy how she became a journalist. It wasn't my, my plan to be a journalist, I, but I have always wanted to become a writer. And I, I become a journalist when I graduate. And, and what motivates me is like these are these questions I always find difficult to explain because m- most of my my decisions and my motivations are like intuitive. I don't really contemplate about what to do. I don't really calculate 
the, the choices I make, I just make them intuitive. I always listen my heart. But when I see it now, I always, I have been always like angry when I see people being abused or like when I see terrible things happening on others, when people do like injustice on others. So I, I, there was this incident, I think I was a, a teenager, that I, I saw a, a husband was was beating his wife like in, in public and she was bleeding. When I when I see that, I just intuitively tried to help the woman. But like what shocked me was not only that she was being abused, but also the fact that people were, they didn't try to help her or like they were like as if this is something normal and they were rather trying to calm down the husband. And I heard the next day the woman died. That must have been a shock. Yes, it was very shocking because I... Like, I have never seen those things. And I was like, it was as if, like, I don't know the society I was living in. And and I heard the next day that she, she, she died. And I was like, I was very sad. But what, what angers me was not only the that she died, and but that the, 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 the reaction of the society towards abuse of women. And just like that, when I first heard about the... the the allegations of women being gang raped by these troops, it was my decision to report those things were wasn't something I calculated. It was intuitive. I just, I didn't calculate the risks that I was taking. Mm. Well, you know, your intuition and your empathy are two things that seem to be characteristic of your reporting. And it, it's so valuable for us to have your eyes and your sensitivities looking at this situation. You know, the Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 for the resolving Ethiopia's border conflict with Eritrea. Why did he turn around and engage in another armed conflict less than a year later? Um, there was this political controversy, uh, like there was there were ethnic conflicts in the country, instabilities, and there were tensions already when he got this Nobel Peace Prize I mean, in Oromia, for example, the government troops were committing human rights abuses, as well as in Amhara region. So it's not like the violations on the level of the Tigray conflict, but there were already violations being carried out by his government when he received the awards. Mm. But the international community wasn't aware of those things. One of the things that seems to characterize that you've done some really, well, award-winning reporting on is the sexual violence that was being used systematically, I mean, really as a, as a tactic, as a significant tactic of the war in Tigray. Would you say that sexual violence has been used by both sides or much more by the Ethiopian army against Tigray? Or how would you characterize the balance? About the sexual violence in the first in the early months of the conflict, the Ethiopian troops and the allied troops from Eritrea and local regional Amhara militia men have carried out sexual violence in Tigray, like against the Tigrayan women. And when you see the nature of this sexual violence act, is it's it's clear that it's been weaponized. It's been it's been systematic. It was in a very huge scale. 
it looks like its intention, its aim was to demoralize the society and to terrorize the society, and and it was it was used as a tactic of war. After like seven or something like eight or months later, the Tigran fighters on their turn, like they advanced to neighboring regions of Amhara and Afar, and during their advance, they have also committed sexual violence. But you don't see this kind of like systematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more of the sexual violence they carried out is out of retribution for previous acts of uh, rape against their mothers and their sisters and, and their regions. The motivation is different. It's not systematic. It's it's re- reactionary or. Yes, and also the scale is not like uh, it's it's not the same. And also, you see this the torture, the, the the torture was like very shocking when it comes to those rape victims in yes. Tigray. They were also subjected to torture, horrific torture, and they were subjected to sexual slavery. But not only in uh, with regard to sexual violence, but also the nature of the. Other abuses, like the killings, for example, you see that the killings against Tigrans in Tigray region were in mass. It was, was like it, they happened in many regions, in, in many towns, and they were so systematic and large scale. Wow. You know, one of the characteristics of your reporting is not only your empathy and your understanding of the people that you're talking about, but it's also your rigorousness about getting the facts and being able to back up your reporting. Could you tell us a little bit about your process? How do you go about reporting on something that's so difficult to report on? So from the very beginning, my way of reporting, because it's the the, the war zones are under blackout and it was like first I received these allegations and then when I received these allegations I I always take first-hand testimonies so I find people who live in that specific place where this allegation comes from and then I search for those people like I actually reached so many people and then finally I got the victims themselves and the and the witnesses and I take all details from them like not only that they were raped or they were their family members were killed but everything they are willing to share with me like what these troops were saying and wow. everything and then after taking that i cross check their testimony with other separate witnesses mm-hmm. to see if the details are consistent because since this is a war and there is propaganda from both sides, there's a lot of misinformation and manipulation of things going on. So I, I, it's very crucial for me. It's like I always cross-check the testimonies with other people, with other first-hand. Mm-hmm. First-hand witnesses. Yeah, and then if they give me the same detail, I mean, like, for example, it can be the dates. It's like the dates and the places where these troops were and where where they carried out the, the, the areas these troops carried out those things and every detail. And if it is consistent, I take it and, and and then I try to back it with any physical evidence. It can be video, picture or like anything like that. And <laughs> yeah. 
the way you work, the way you just described it, could be a big risk for some of the sources of information that you have. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, who are actually, as you say, they're the, they're the actual victims of the violence. How do you get them, how do you build trust to get them to speak to you? It was, at first, it was very difficult for me to, to build that trust because people, because of the abuses, so many people are very afraid of uh, talking to, to a journalist. Uh, but gradually, I think with people looking into my work, they kind of built this trust on me. But not only that, when I talk to them, I just, I, I guarantee them that I will not share any anything about like their identity like who they are or like unless they are they are willing and they trust me when I I don't know like they just like there are there are people who, who are reluctant but most people do trust me I guess on some level they want their story to be heard you know for the sake of social justice it is like some of the people are like that there are people who who really want to share I mean, it gives them a sense of justice when they share their stories and when they see their stories out there uh, that it's it's not hidden, that it's criminals are exposed, give them some kind of joy or like uh, relief or like some kind of sense of justice. But it's it's not always the case, like especially with the rape victims. I mean, they just don't want to remember those traumatic things. So when I talk to them, I just try to not to be formal. My approach has been like I talk to them like a friend or like a sister, not not like a journalist. I, I'm very informal, so I think that that encourages them to open up to me. At a point, you decided you had to leave Ethiopia for your own safety. Can you talk about that moment? Uh, I was working, uh, like, the first story that got me into trouble, the story of a 27-year-old mother who was gang raped by 15 Eritrean troops is a story I wrote for, I did for LA Times. So it was, like, a groundbreaking story in terms of, I mean, there were allegations of sexual violence before that, uh, but uh, this was, I think, uh, groundbreaking in terms of, like, the details and that it's from the victim herself. Mm -hmm. So while doing that story, three government agents raided my house and they took evidences I smuggled from the, the, the region under blackout. And they threatened to kill me if I continue digging about the war. I wasn't deterred by that threat. I published that story. And the day that the story was published, the Ethiopian government released a statement that I am, the Prime Minister Office released a statement. Mm that I'm not a journalist and the supporters opened a huge campaign of hate. So I had to flee fearing for my life. Yeah, but I must tell, like, in those times, like, people, because so many people see, like, like so many people think that I did this, like, to create impact. It, it wasn't my intention to create any impact or it, it wasn't my intention to become a voice for like for for the for the raped woman or like for anyone it was intuitive i just want to say that it was my decision was intuitive like when i see 
myself. Like when I tried to think of being silent while these horrible things were happening, I felt selfish. So putting myself, like comparing, I was comparing myself mm. to, the, to, the, to the people suffering. Well, it's, it's hard not to. No, and that's, you know, some of the most powerful reporting we have is when journalists like you give voice to people who have, don't have a voice, who are, uh, don't have access to media, don't have access to uh, redress. But let me ask you this. Has leaving Ethiopia changed your reporting in any way? Yes, it has changed my reporting in terms of safety. Because like when I was in Ethiopia, I was like imagining myself, like imagining what I have been through. Like when I see, when I look back, I don't think it would be possible for me to uh, continue what I have been doing while still inside the country. Like uh, while people still uh, campaigning for me to be silenced and to be arrested and and gang raped or like it would have been difficult for me to keep doing those things without censoring. Like, of course, the pressures continued in another form, like in online hate and the pressures didn't stop, but it would have been very like dangerous for me to do it there. So what I get by like living, fleeing from Ethiopia is that I I got this safety, like I... It gives me like, okay, so now I can focus only on my work. While in Addis, like, while in Ethiopia, I could have only do what I have been doing uh, remotely because the, the, the war zones are blocked after all. So. Right. Well, I'm glad you're safe. That's very important. I mean, that's critical. Let me ask you this. As a reporter covering this war, how do you see your role? My role in this conflict Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like my role has been like in shedding light on those atrocities which could have otherwise been like hidden. The impact is yet to be seen because there is no justice. Like the the issue of accountability is still a question. A pistol is signed, but the, what about justice? Like the the women who are who are raped and these thousands of women were raped and half a million people were killed and half a million people more than half a million people were killed and uh, like sometimes i say those the ones who are killed or who, who died are lucky because when i when i see the trauma of the women i consider the ones who died very lucky because the trauma of the women is everlasting i mean they actually prefer to die it's not only physical, the mental trauma is everlasting. So what about justice? Like the issue of justice is still a question. I mean, it's not a joke, like thousands are raped. So your fight continues, I mean, because you want to see that you, you not only want to see peace, you want to see justice. I want like just peace is not for me, like for peace to come, there has to be justice. The, the victims expect their, their their suffering to be acknowledged. It's not even acknowledged yet. It's not right. recognized. Right. It's, it's still being denied. So for peace to come, otherwise there will there will be like endless cycle of conflict because the, the, this side is not is still feeling like it has still bitterness because of these things. And they expect to, their, their suffering to be acknowledged and to get redressed. 
And so I think my, my role was in documenting those, those violations which could have been otherwise untold. Like, at least they are out there. They are no longer in the dark and people can, uh, in the future, perhaps, if someone wants to, to hold the perpetrator's account, they can go and check. And that's, that, that's what my role was. Well, that's an important goal. I mean, you know, fighting for justice is a very important piece of achieving a, a viable piece, a, a real piece. Yeah, thank you. Have you seen effects on the war as a result of your reporting or others reporting in international media? Uh, I mean, I have seen changes. I have seen an impact. For example, there was this this massacre in, in like in a territory where the militiamen were killing people. They were killing people, uh, and then they would burn the bodies and draw them to a river. And this was being carried out with total impunity. And the thing is, what I have observed is that the perpetrators think that they are not being watched. Because mm-hmm. The region is blocked and, and the journalists are not there. They think that one of the reasons that they do, they carry out these crimes is because they think they can escape justice. They, they think they are not being watched. And, and there was just so many reports in the international media, including an investigation by me of civilians being killed, burned, and their bodies drawn to river. And at least for some weeks, the, this militiamen, they stopped their, their killings, carrying out those, those, those killings. So it has an effect of, it has, it's been very impactful in deterring the perpetrator somehow. I mean, it's not like, they will be deterred. They, they will carry out the, the, the they would carry out the violations, but at least for some period of time, it, they kind of get deterred. Right, right. And also, one of the things is like I have seen, which I consider a very great impact, like impact of this stories being told in the international media outlets is. There were thousands and thousands of ethnic Tigrans being rounded up and sent to detention camps last year. Right. This time, uh, there were so many rounds up, round up of ethnic Tigrans in the capital. Who, the, the, these are people who live outside the war zones, just normal mm-hmm. people, but they've been targeted because of their ethnicity and sent to detention camps. And there was so many reports about about that and. And the government released those, uh, at least like not all of them, but they have released so many of them. So you see these kinds of changes. Right. Those are meaningful changes. It is meaningful, yeah. But you don't see similar changes when the reports are by local media outlets. Mm-hmm. The, the, this perpetrators, the Ethiopian government and all sides, I think they have this fear of being like, they, they don't fear accountability from inside the country because they they know that nobody will question them that they will they will get away with with those things easily inside the country but i think their worst nightmare is being held accountable for what crimes internationally so they don't want these stories to be out there that's why they block the the the, the region and when they come out somehow it it kind of make them fearful and deterred but let me ask you this. 
Do you think that journalists have a role to play in building peace amidst conflict? Yes. I have seen as long as as long as you present the facts and evidences, they always have an impact in in peace and all good things. And as long as you are not you don't fall into the trap of propaganda and misinformation and manipulation, you you always contribute for peace because I see some people make decisions based on propaganda and misinformation and manipulation. So the, the role of journalists in this could be like uh, by presenting what's really happening on the ground, by presenting the, the truth uh, as it is, they can play a huge role. You've been able to report for important international outlets like The Guardian and Al Jazeera and LA Times. How did you connect with these outlets? You know, was it easy? Was it hard? How did they, how did they respond to your pitches? Um, before I started pitching for those outlets, I was working as a, a correspondent for a Norwegian magazine. Mm-hmm. The Norway Ministry of Foreign Affairs publishes every month, so I I was I had that experience. So when I like I, I just how I get into contact is I started pitching for those outlets. There was this Christmas and my my editors in this Norwegian magazine they were out of like office most of them on holiday. So there was this very important story that I wanted to get published because. But nobody will will work on that. We'll translate it. I see. Yeah, everybody was on holiday, and uh, somebody has to translate it to Norwegian. That's how I started pitching. So I sent the pitch to Al Jazeera, and then yeah, they accept the the pitch. Mm-hmm. I see. Recently, on November second, the TPLF and the government of Ethiopia signed a peace deal, and uh, humanitarian aid has begun to flow into Tigray. But there's still acts of violence, from what I understand. Is that right? I haven't, I haven't verified the allegations which are which we are receiving after the peace deal, the signing of the peace deal. But the, there are, of course, allegations of continuing human rights abuses after the truce. Do you think that continued international attention would make a difference to the way the peace deal plays out? Yes. Like, it's a good thing that the peace deal is signed, but there are still allegations of abuses from this this region, and there are still, the, the region is still under blackouts, and uh, communications are still blocked, and reporting on them, like, on whether the, the terms are being... Whether they're fulfilling the terms. Of- ...are being made or not is very crucial. And the international media outlets, as always, like as it happened with the atrocities, they have a big role or contribution. Like they have, I, I believe that they might contribute in holding this parties accountable and also in keeping their promises. Like, as I said, half a million people have died in this conflict and thousands were raped. And so it's not easy to get past those things and the reconciliation part and the if, if the victims are really being redressed or not, is something worthy of reporting, in my opinion. Yes. I mean, you know, when you look at the reconciliation process in countries like Ireland, Sierra Leone, Colombia, Colombia just finished a massive effort to catalog all the crimes that were committed 
during the war. You know, reconciliation is a process that needs attention and it needs focus. It needs people like you continuing to focus and pay attention to it, to bring it out. Yes, and the thing is, uh, it's not even started. The victims need their, their, the, the, the injustice which is done on them to be acknowledged, to be uh, recognized. They won't, but it's, st- it's still being denied. So, yeah. yeah, it's a long way. You know, we're all very fortunate that there are people like you working to, to cover the kinds of injustices you've seen and heard about. It's so important. If, you, if there aren't people like you to shine a light on these kinds of atrocities, they, they're invisible. And the fact that they're invisible makes the, the people who commit these crimes unaccountable. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that, that you've been able to do this kind of reporting and do it so rigorously. So thank you. thank you for all that you're doing to speak for the voiceless and continue the good work. The world depends on people like you. In our show notes, we've got links to some of Lucy Casa's stories and more background on Ethiopia and the war in Tigray. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrea Moraskin, Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project, and I'm Jamil Simon. If you got something from this episode, please share a link with a friend or a colleague. Word of mouth is the best way we can grow our audience. Thanks for listening, and talk soon.